and there's something sure. about someone saying Christ loves you that hits different different than <laughs> like Jesus loves you. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the episode. Today we're discussing the readings for the first Sunday of Advent. Remember, you can if you enjoy this podcast, you can like, comment, share, and subscribe. Leave us a review. All of it helps us to fight and appease the algorithm gods. Yes, the also, almighty gods. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> also, if you want to ask us a question, you can leave us a question by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. So we're in the Advent season. And I thought we could start a little bit by talking about liturgical time, sacred time, the season of Advent itself. We'll uh, combine this into the sacred and profane, I guess. You know, sacred yeah. time versus profane time. Yeah. Well, last episode, we talked about uh, the great solemnity of Christ the King, right. which ended the liturgical year. It was... Uh, celebrating Christ as the king of all things, uh, you know, celebrating his um, full glory. And now we're beginning the new liturgical year where we remember his beginnings and his humble beginnings, right, where he's born in a manger. And so, you know, there's this kind of beautiful um, arc almost with the story of Christ where the liturgical year mimics his, his entire life, essentially. Uh, and so we're at the beginning of the Christian story now, where last week we just celebrated the end of the Christian story, in a sense. Right. So. Right. Advent is the new year for the church. In, the new year. In a sense. So we've end, ended last year. It's a little bit before the, the new year of the sacred, or I'm sorry, the, the profane new year versus the yeah. sacred new year. It's interesting that that Christianity introduces a a totally different understanding, I think, of, of sacred time and of time in general. You know, kind of prior to Christianity, uh, the, the world is very, time is seen very, uh, in, a, in a circular manner, mm-hmm. that it's, it's kind of this endless cycle of, of kind of life, of, of birth, life, death, rebirth, death, life, you know, kind of yeah, just all, right. kind of over and over and over right. again. And there isn't really this idea of a, a consummation that that the, that time is moving towards yeah. an end point. It's just a, a, an eternal cycle of events that history, really don't, history repeats itself. Like you're right, kind of exactly, and it yeah. doesn't really have, like I said, any sort of eschaton mm-hmm. or last things. But right. Christianity comes and introduces this idea of time as both linear and cyclical. Cyclical, yeah, right. It yeah. has this idea that there is a beginning. In Genesis, at some point, you know, Genesis is a you know, sacred myth about the beginning of time. Yeah, and then you have, but but there's clearly some sort of beginning. But then it also introduces this idea that there's an end of time with Christ, mm-hmm. that it's moving towards something. Right. But within that linear cycle, you have these smaller circles. We've we've talked about this, I think, before. Uh, you have these smaller s- circles of sacred time of Christ's life, particularly yeah. liturgical time. Right. And and that's something that Ratzinger mentioned in his Spirit of, Spirit of the Liturgy book, where, uh, you know, you have these two opposing views of is, his, is, is, 
is the span of the cosmos linear or cyclical. And it's both and, as mm-hmm. with many things Catholic, <laughs> always both and. Uh, it's linear with little circles within that uh, linearity. Uh, and, and you can even scale it back all the way to um, the day, where every day is kind of seen as a linear circle. <laughs> uh, like yeah, you, know, right. you, you rise in the morning, yeah. um, you begin your day, uh, and then you go to sleep at night, kind of symbolically dying, right? And, and every day is a new cycle. Uh, and then you can expand that out to the week, right, where the church is, you know, sees Sunday as the beginning and the end. Um, and then the year. And so you have, again, yeah, these small small little circles within the linearity of time. Um, so it's, it's really neat how that's kind of symbolically taken up into the calendar of the church, um, especially beginning with Advent. It's not a coincidence that we celebrate this, um, you know, during the winter, winter solstice, right, when the days, days are growing darker. Um, and then Christmas is celebrated um, when this... The sun is at its lowest, right? Oh, I'm sorry. The day, I guess right before Christmas, the days are at its darkest, and then it begins to brighten. Again, right. Um, right. Symbolically mimicking that, you know, the coming, the coming of Christ. So. Right. There's supposed to be kind of a, a conjoining of of the cosmic and the sacred, you know, yeah. of that in some ways, that man's life and Christ's life mimics the rhythm of the cosmos. Yeah, the exactly. Rhythm of nature. That's true. Um, but again, Christianity introduces this a very peculiar idea that Christ is the bridge between these these two moments between time and eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Saint Bonaventure though would say that not just the bridge, but Christ is the center of the cosmos. So he's he's time and eternity. He's infinite and finite. And, and finite yeah, you know, right. kind of temporal and eternal. All all these different elements he unite, unites the two, and on a grander scale. Or not a grander scale. There's no there's no scale grander than that. <laughs> on on a different scale is the liturgical year, which is supposed to mimic that. It's supposed yeah. to unite the two of that the life of Christ, Christ's incarnation has happened, but it also has this kind of eternal quality. It has a hist- historical um, fact to it, but also an eternal quality that you right. can go back and relive. And we kind of see that in the pattern of uh Advent itself and the, and the themes of Advent, uh, you know, we uh, simply put, we can say that Advent is a season of season of waiting for the coming of Christ. Uh, but that waiting for the coming of Christ, preparing perhaps is a better term, um, preparing for the coming of Christ, takes on three different aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes on the past, present, and future. And so, in one sense, we are preparing for the coming of our Lord as we remembered him coming as a child and born in Bethlehem. Um, in another sense, we're also preparing for the second coming of Christ, uh, where he will come at the end in all of his glory. Uh, but the third aspect, I think, and, and is one probably we can uh, better incorporate throughout the entire year, is waiting for the coming of Christ in the present moment. Um, one way to do that is right preparing to receive our Lord at Mass, even every day, like when you wake up, just say, like, let me be open to your grace, Lord, you know, that you may live in me. Um, or to use um, uh, Christmas language, like that you may be born within me. Um, right. And so those aspects of preparation mimic that sense of the eternal, um, 
and the temporal, the past, present, and future, all of it. Um, so, yeah, uh, Saint John Henry Newman said that Advent is a that uh, worship is a preparation for Christ's coming, particularly in the season of Advent. So you're right; it's the mood of Advent is on one hand to relive the time before He was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of get into the the mindset of of the patriarchs and and the prophets of the Old Testament that you're anxiously awaiting and anxiously anxiously on the lookout for the coming of the Messiah. But on the other hand, he has come. So the best way to continually to prepare yourself is to go to mass where he, where Christ kind of makes his, his uh, whole lifespan again in the mass, you know? Yep. So the question or a question is, is Advent a penitential season similar to Lent? It, traditionally, it has been. Yes. Right? So people would take up penances during Advent. That's kind of fallen to the wayside, and it's not as encouraged now um, in parishes. Uh, personally, I, I would recommend, if, if someone came up to me asking that question, I would recommend to them that they would deny themselves some pleasure like they would in Lent to better clear your heart out <laughs> for Christ's coming. Yeah. Uh, it almost makes sense that you should, you know, at the very least, increase your prayer time, right, um, during this season. Um, when we say to prepare your heart, that implies that your heart now is not prepared. <laughs> and so there has to be some transition um, to towards that clearing of your heart, Um that has to be, in a sense, penitential. That has to sting a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, to answer your question, strictly speaking, it's it's not right now, right? It's not like Fridays. We're not required to um, abstain from meat, right? Well, it just um, has many elements similar to something like Lent. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of only two seasons where where the color is purple, right? And purple's often associated, not often, is associated with penance. Yeah. So the I would say the the object perhaps or the intention mentality behind the penitential season of Advent is different than Lent, right? So there are certain things that are suppressed in the mass during Lent. Um that it is, is the Gloria, right? In during Lent? The Gloria is not said in Advent, actually. No, it's no, not it's, no, well it's not said in Advent, not, but the reason is is because he hasn't come. Right. It's, so it's yeah. it's more, again, the mindset you're supposed to get in in Advent is that the mindset of Christ is not here yet. Right. He's exactly. coming. Yeah. Whereas it's much more um, this idea of preparing to die to self yeah. in, during uh, during Lent right. as opposed to Advent. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's actually a really good point because during Lent, we have experienced the presence of our Lord already. And then he's going to be taken away from us. Right. And so there's a sense of deeper sorrow. Yeah. That, right, right, right. During Advent, there's a sense of um, anticipation and hope. You know, there's a recognition that we are in need of saving and that our world is not um, as it should be. Um, but I think Lent takes on more of a sorrow because we're experiencing the presence of our Lord and we are going to be faced with his death. Right. Um, right. Well, what, one major difference is 
in Lent, the Alleluia is suppressed. Well, yeah, but in Advent, true. it's not. Yeah. And the idea is that this, there's a joyful and hopeful expectation, right. uh, perhaps an anxious expectation, um, s- sort of similar to, uh, I guess, to keep the theme of Advent, uh, you know, you're expecting a child, right. everyone. So Advent is literally pregnant yeah. with uh, hopeful like, in anticipation of yeah. what's to come. Which, you know... This is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I'm not opposed to like decorating, like paying, putting up Christmas decorations during Advent. Yeah. Um, I sang a Christmas carol this morning. I didn't sing actually, <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, because it's that sense of, you know, we know what's coming. And so there is hope to that. So Advent, while it is, um, you know, the color is purple. The liturgical, liturgical color is purple. The sense of preparation, it's undergirded with a sense of hope. Um, yeah. That's different from Lent, I would say. Yeah. So, Well, I'd like to begin with something we usually don't, usually don't begin with, which is the collect. So that's the, the opening prayer of the Mass. And m- many commentators say that the collect is really, if you're, look, if you're looking for the theme of the Mass, if you're looking yeah. for them, it's, it's the collect. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe we should talk about it more. I don't know, but especially in in Advent, the colics are very unique. They're they're all unique, I'm pretty sure, yep. to the Mass of that day. So if you're looking for a theme, very quickly, the colic gives it to you. So the colic for the first Sunday of Advent is grant your faithful, we pray, Almighty God, the resolve to run forth to meet your Christ with righteous deeds at His coming, so that gathered at His right hand, they may be worthy to possess the heavenly kingdom. So. A few things. So we have this idea of resolving to run forth to meet Christ, and so that's this. That's kind of the the com- combination of eagerly awaiting, but then also this is supposed to be an event that we're on the lookout for, that we're supposed to go out and meet. It's an it's, active it's, waiting, right? Right. Not exactly. Yep. So you know, you're as we'll get to in the theme of the gospel. Wait, you keep watch that when you see the Christ, you can run forth to meet him. And you're not caught suddenly unaware. Right. Um, you're you're on the lookout. And this idea of of righteous deeds at his coming, perhaps uh, contra sola fide, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it this this righteous deeds at his coming and then gather at his right hand makes me think of the readings just from last week from uh, the the feast of Christ the King. Is this I- idea of again right being gathered on? The, the righteous side as opposed to the left, but then also that Christ is is going to ask us what we've done and not just the faith that we've had. Right. So this season of of preparation is is not just to grow in faith, which is also good, but also in this penitential aspect to be doing things that purify us and that yeah make us ready to go forth. Right. And there's a sense too that in in preparing for our Lord and doing, you know, doing righteous deeds uh, that enables us to run to our Lord. There is right. no really there wouldn't be a hopeful anticipation of your Lord if you're not worthy to receive him uh, or to be with him. Uh, you know, naturally, if you are unprepared to meet someone who's, you know, higher than your, your boss, for example, um, you're not going to run to him and, and want to, you know, be with him. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so those two 
uh, are connected to each other. Running to meet him and preparing to meet him with righteous deeds are intricately um, connected. So. so our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah. And that reading goes, You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, you are named forever. Why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the, the tribes of your heritage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, but the mountains quaking before you. While you wrought awesome deeds we could not hope for, such as they had not heard of from of old. No ear has heard, no eye has ever seen any God but you doing such deeds for those who wait for him. Mm-hmm. Would that you might meet us doing right, that we were mindful of you in our ways. Behold, you are angry and we are sinful. All of us have become like unclean people. All our good deeds are like polluted rags. We have all withered like leaves and our guilt carries us away like the wind. There is none who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to cling to you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us up to our guilt. Yet, yet, O Lord, you are our Father, You are the clay. we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. A very beautiful poem. Yeah, I was going to say there's, um, there's a sense of um, like anguish yeah. that uh, Isaiah is expressing. And it's a anguish based on this fact, I think, that he is aware that nothing can save him except God himself. Like, there's no sense of trying to be a better person uh, by his own power. And, and you know, this, this um, sentence that uh, he says in the middle of this reading uh, Behold, you are angry and we are sinful. All of us have become like unclean people. All our good deeds are like polluted rags. It's almost hopeless. It's like I can't even try to save myself. It's, it's, it's worthless. Um, and so before that, when he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the mountains quaking before you. While you wrought awesome deeds we could not hope for, such as they had not heard from of old. I think Isaiah is recognizing the great rift that has uh, occurred after the fall, where a, a, a finite creature has offended an infinite God, and by the order of justice, nothing man can do to can can redeem himself. Uh, and so there's there has to be a miracle for that that chasm to be bridged. Um, Man can't do it by himself. It has to come down from heaven. It reminds me of a poem. If you have any thoughts, I'm going to look up a poem that this reminds me of. But um, yeah, it, like, like you said, that was a very beautiful reading. <laughs> um, uh, very poetic. Yeah, this uh, idea of rending the heavens, it reminds me of, kind of the, the rending of the, the veil in the temple. So there's there's this kind of veil between heaven and earth that Isaiah is, is asking God to rend and bring down, which is very interesting because Isaiah doesn't have an idea of the incarnation. <clears throat> um, the The idea that God would be incarnated is not it's it's found kind of in symbolic or uh, allusions in the Old Testament, but there's no real writing saying that the Messiah would be God. The God man, right. there, there's no nothing yeah. explicit in that. So when he says that. You know, he's actually calling for God to to tear the veil between heaven and earth, and that you have wrought these awesome deeds in the past that no eyes ever seen or ears ever heard. 
in some ways, this is going to be fulfilled in a way that is completely unimaginable mm-hmm. to the to the prophets in the arc in the arc in the incarnation, and that the the this veil between time and eternity again will be torn in the incarnation again. Christ will become the center of all things. Yeah, will become the center of, of the cosmos. But again, they would never have even considered that as, as a possibility. Right, and I know. Um... As our, as we progress through Advent, um, I know the readings begin to take on more of a um, like a dire sense of how, um, or it, it it begins to recognize how dire our situation is. I remember it was last year um, during Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent, talks about the sign of the Virgin who will give birth, um, and. Kind of mimicking this theme of our first reading today, um, the sign of the Virgin uh, kind of uh, relates to Isaiah's words here when he says, while you wrought awesome deeds we could not hope for, such as they had not heard from of old. If a virgin can give birth, what greater sign than you need to know that God is with us, (laughs) right? right. It's a sense of like that's the greatest miracle um, uh, to, to... to kind of um, transition into the Christmas miracle. Um, anyway, I, I found this um, poem. This poem is actually found in um, in the breviary during uh, the Advent and Christmas um, mm-hmm. breviary. At the end, there's a collection of poetry, um, and this is one of the Advent poems. Um, and I think it just it's very uh, fitting to our first reading here. This is from um, W. H. Auden. Uh, it's called "From the Time for the Time Being," and I'm not going to read the whole poem, but this one stanza um, is really really beautiful. Uh, He says, we who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Uh, Again, death is a fact of life. (laughs) Uh, the, The order of justice has been offended uh, by man to his infinite creator, the only thing that can save us is something coming outside of our world. Uh, it has to be a miracle. It has to be a miracle. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think going back to what you said about Isaiah's kind of touching on this idea that something is fundamentally wrong and there's nothing that they they can do to fix it. It seems yeah. like everything that they're doing, even their their righteous deeds or their good deeds, he says, are, are like uh, old rags. Are like what, old rags. Yeah, exactly. So there there's something that's at the core of of creation and humanity that is off or broken that no human can fix. And so he's saying, you have to rend the heavens and come down. You have to do an awesome deed mm-hmm. to fix this. That this is a problem that only God. <clears throat> that you, God, can fix. Going back to the the first part, though, of the first reading, Isaiah says, Why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways, and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So you have a bit of the fear of the Lord that we talked about before, yeah. that part of the reason why they wander is because they do not have a proper fear of God. That They're in the situation that they're in because they didn't have this filial fear mm-hmm. of, of God, but right. instead... Um, perhaps a, a, well, I would say, I was going to say a different kind of fear, but they have no fear. And therefore, 
they don't respect the ways of God. Yeah. You know, they, they don't feel that they have to keep the law. But then this other idea of why do you let us wander? And I immediately thought of the first canto in Dante's Inferno, mm. where he says, um, midway upon this life, this journey of life, I found myself in a dark wilderness. I had wandered, wandered from the straight and true. Yeah. So this idea of wandering as a symbol of sin or an idea of sin. Yep. And you see that throughout, not just Dante, but also in the Old Testament. But in a sense, to wander also implies that there's some sort of goal or path. Yeah. Right. And, and, and Isaiah even kind of alludes to this when he says that we're not mindful of God's ways and therefore we wander. Yeah. And being on the path, following on the way, these are all very common phrases or images in scripture of being uh, of following God or, or of being right with God yeah. and to wander is is the opposite right um, that's that's great that you brought up Dante because WH Auden was actually a huge fan of Dante oh there you go and and the beginning of this poem I said I wasn't going to say the whole thing but the beginning of the poem says it begins at uh, saying alone alone about a dreadful wood <laughs> of conscious evil runs a lost mankind. And he says, dreading to find its father, lest it find the goodness it has dreaded is not good. Alone, alone, about our dreadful, dreadful wood. For Dante, uh, the wood has always symbolized sin. Uh, it's, it's, you know, this tangled mess that you're lost in. And the further you walk through it, the further you're immersed in it, and the, the less hopeful you are to actually get out of it. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the state of mankind. Um, after the fall, is that now we're we're lost in this wood of sin, and the only thing that can get us out is again that miracle of God coming, uh, becoming man. He is the one that shows us the way out of the wood. Essentially, mm-hmm. he reveals to us the path that we have to live uh, in order to overcome death. Right. Um. Without without his um revelation, um, we're stuck in the wood forever so well the wood is sin works uh, the, the wood is sin or the woods is sin and the idea of being lost or wandering i think works well with the, the definition of sin uh, hamartia this idea of missing the mark mm-hmm. and but you know sin sin and missing the mark doesn't happen in a vacuum right if you know hamartia is a um, is an archery term. So if you shoot at an at a goal or, or target and you miss, it's not as though the arrow disappears. Right. Like it, it continues on and hits and lands somewhere. So it, it's not just simply missing the mark, but it's also where do you land? Right. And, and what are your desires aimed towards? Right. Um, right. If not the good, then what? Um, and, and that's what happened. That's what ha- has happened after the fall. It's not so much that um, we just don't love God anymore, like we're separated from God, but we're actually attached to other things apart from God. Uh, and that's, you know, the concupiscible, like concupiscence, um, desiring, um, our desires are all crooked. Um, we tend towards sin. That's what we do. Um, we tend towards sin. And God has allowed that. You know, it's interesting that Isaiah is like, why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways? Um, almost this cry saying like, why did you give us this freedom that has left, you know, yeah. that has allowed us to stray from you? Um, I was going to mention that that 
Isaiah invokes God as father twice, once at the beginning and then once at the end. But the first time he says, you are a father, why do you let us wander? But you're right, it's this mystery of God's love Mm -hmm. and our freedom. That God is is a good father, and as a good father, he ha- he lets you wander. Yeah, that yeah exactly. If he didn't, then he might be tyrannical. Right. But he gives you freedom at a very high cost. Like mm-hmm. the freedom to do as you will comes with a very very high cost. Yeah, and part of it might be falling into the laments that Isaiah is going on about right. is that you may end up wandering too far and feeling as though the only thing that can bring you back is a, a miracle. Yeah, by God. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful again. It's a beautiful expression of um, of love and anguish. Um, so, like you know, Paul kind of expresses this too. You know, when he says, um, "You know, I, I cried out so that you can take this um, thorn from my side," like this desire to just be with God, but the limits of our flesh is just weighing us down. And it's almost like I'd rather not have my freedom if it means that I can be, you know, with you, Lord. Uh, and so, yeah, it's. It's beautiful. It's nice. <laughs> it's it's good. <laughs> so uh, towards the end of the first reading, Isaiah mentions that God has hidden his face from the the Israelites. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you, you know, hide your face from us and deliver us up to guilt? So we're gonna pin that idea right there of, of God's hidden face. Yes. Although it's it's one that I think we we can understand pretty easily because although Christ, we, we live in a very strange time, right? You know, it's, we're not in the time of Isaiah and we're not in the eschaton either, or we're not living, seeing God's face, God's face has come, but it's also kind of come and gone. Mm-hmm. Like it, we can kind of see it and we kind of can't. So we kind of live in this world of God's hidden face, but then also not. Well, that leads us, leads us perfectly to the Psalm. Right. If you're ready to transition there. Yeah. Let's talk about the Psalm. Yeah. So the psalm refrain is, O Lord, make, O, o Lord, or Lord, Lord make, make, us, make us turn yeah. to you. Let us see your face and we shall be saved. Let us so, see your face and we shall be saved. Um, kind of dovetailing off of your last point, the sense of seeing God's face uh, is kind of reserved only for Moses <laughs> right, <laughs> um, up yeah. until the coming of Christ. Um, you know, no one sees the face of God and lives. That's that's kind of the understanding in the Old Testament, um, and yet now that you know God has taken on flesh to him, He's taken flesh to Himself, become man. Now we can. Now God does has a face. He has a face. He also has a name, right? He has a body now that we can touch, which is really scandalous. It is that miracle which breaks, you know, all the laws of, um, you know, nature. Well, I don't want to say it's anti-nature, but it seems to be so scandalous um, that it seems to defy everything that we knew of God, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, in a sense. Um, Well, yeah, and it's the awesome deeds that we, that no eye has seen or ear has heard. Right, and that we could have even hoped for. Right. Um, It's God taking on flesh, becoming man. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost done with, um, Spirit of the Liturgy, um, uh, from Ratzinger. And, uh, I had recently read, um, the section where he talks about, um, uh, I, uh, icons. Uh, and he, he mentioned as Ratzinger often does, he goes through the historical development of, you know, icons and art. 
and he uh, was talking about uh, iconoclasm, this idea that you know God cannot be represented in art uh, because it's too sacred. Ultimately, he said though that that um, heresy, as it is properly understood as a heresy, is anti-incarnational. Uh, if God can deem to take a human form, then that means that the world can bear the weight of the divine. That the natural world can actually tell us something about God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it should scandalize us. Like even us who are devout Christians should kind of be scandalized by how uh, low Christ, God was willing to go to save us. Um, what does Carl Jung say? Um, people don't find God because they're not looking low enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. um, And um, another poem... Wordsworth. I'm sorry, I'm just quoting po- you, you did Dante, I did Auden, it's, it's a day of poetry. Day of, but yeah. um, uh, um, Wordsworth has um, a great poem uh, called Crazy Jane Talks to the Bishop. And he has a line there saying that love has placed his, has pitched his mansion in a place of excrement, for nothing can be whole or soul which has not been rent. Um but it, it, he just like it kind of paints, paints the picture vividly that like in this world that is like excrement, right? Um, that's like crap. That's where love has deemed to pitch his place, uh, his tent. Um, and that's again like going back to you, yeah. Um, we don't look low enough for God, and so that idea of iconoclasm, um, destroying images uh, that represent God because God is too sacred to be portrayed, uh, is a betrayal of the incarnation, right? Um, and to, to even this idea that we can see God's face now and live. Um, yeah. Oh, we, we see, again, in a oddly, you know, kind of veiled and unveiled way, we see his face in, at Mass in the Eucharist. But it's, again, I think veiled for for our sake. <laughs> yeah, right. But, yeah, yeah. But it, it still is, is his face. Um, and, and the same thing with icons, you know, where we're able to to depict Christ and to, to see him, but we don't necessarily see him in his full glory, which I think is a perfect, in some ways icons are a perfect representation of where we are now. The existential situation of man is we see God's face or we, we've seen the face of Christ, yet we don't see it in its full glory. Yeah. And that's for our benefit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the Psalm has, again, picks up on some poetic imagery keeping the day of poetry going, <laughs> where he says, O shepherd of Israel, hearken from your throne upon the cherubim, shine forth, rouse up your rouse up your power and come to save us. And then in the next, he talks about the God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. So there's kind of this, again, this image of a cosmic divide where that God is in the heavens and we are on earth. And there's a inseparable chasm or inseparable or impenetrable veil mm-hmm. that comes between us. But it's it's interesting that both the psalmist and Isaiah seem to be suggesting that there is a way in which God can bridge this divide. But they're in some sense not exactly sure how that's going to happen. They mm-hmm. know he's wrought deeds in the past, right. but how is it going to happen now? Um Jung's talked a little bit about this idea of kind of, and and I think Ratzinger maybe as well, kind of the idea of the, the evolving 
conception and the evolving image of God throughout the Old Testament, and that there seems to be this movement from Job and the, and the wisdom literature and the prophets of this idea that God has to become man. That God, there's something that that they have to pull God down a little bit, a little bit more. That there's God is too, in too divine, too transcendent in a way. Yeah. For man to grasp, to for man to understand. I think that goes back to the iconoclastic, iconoclasm thing you were talking about. Is if we say God cannot be depicted, in some sense we're still maintaining this inseparable divide. We're still saying that the veil has not been torn, right. and we have not seen God. Right, and he, he's he's. I think it's um, a charitable interpretation is to want to maintain God's sovereignty yeah. and God's divinity and transcendence, but the bottom line is he is that, but he's also become man yeah. and suffered and died. So, well, and that's the mystery, right? Um, it's, it's human and divine, eternal, temporal, um, for taking like the eternal taking time into himself. Um, it's something that. While it has happened, and that's what we celebrate in Christianity, it's something that we cannot fully grasp until, right? You know, until the end. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, and and it's really, I mean, the Old Testament has been, they've kind of been prepped for the incarnation, yeah. in a sense of, uh, you know, what you know, Israel's refrain of like what, um, what people can claim God as close to them as our God, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the, the, the deeds that God has done for Israel, um, to deliver them out from Egypt, you know, they, they know that he cares for them. And so the groundwork is kind of set for them to accept the incarnation. Although the incarnation is such a great event to that nothing can fully, you know, prepare them. Right. It's like, oh, like, you know, I expected this to happen. Again, going back to Isaiah, this is something that's beyond hope in a sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, good. Let's move on to the second reading from 1 Corinthians. I'm going to skip the little introduction there. Yeah, go ahead. And just get into the, the main body. I give thanks to God always on your account for the grace of God bestowed on you in Christ Jesus that in him you were enriched in every way, with all discourse and all knowledge, as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you await as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you firm to the end, irreproachable on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, and by him you were called to fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So St. Paul kind of represents... Our time. Well, he does represent our time, which is this expectation, the already and not yet, kind of we're we're in this this middle period that the first reading represented kind of the the mentality we're we're supposed to relive. We're supposed to get into the idea that Christ has not yet come. Mm-hmm. But we're also supposed to have the mentality of, of St. Paul here, which is Christ has come and now we eagerly await the day of revelation. So revelation here, I don't know if it's every single time, but in this time is the Greek word for apocalypse. So this idea of revealing, of unveiling or uncovering, Mm -hmm. which in some ways goes back to what we were just talking about, that in the incarnation, Christ or God unveils his face. It's a, a revelation of God 
and of man, but also this this great uncovering, mm-hmm. the 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 rent veil imagery again, um, that God has torn the veil over His face, and in the incarnation, and He's here. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, Just, yeah, that's um, that's exactly right. I um, it's. Yeah, it's that that full revelation of who God is, is in the person of Christ, uh, and so we can say that the nature of God is unveiled by Christ. This is why we also call Christ the, the Word of God. Um, in the beginning was the Word, uh, capital W, uh, meaning the, the word. You know, philosophically speaking, um, symbolizes an idea, right? What's in the mind of the person, and so if I speak to you a word, um, that word represents what is within my heart and my mind. And so if we say that Christ is the word of God, that means that he is revealing the heart of God. He's revealing somehow the nature of God, that which cannot be known before he came, um, if he's the word. Um, When we say God speaks, he speaks through the person of Christ. And so everything that Christ does uh, is a revelation of the Father, uh, of God himself. And so, you know, when we see... So when we when we step step back and look at the life of Christ, and we, we see the incarnation, um, him being born in a manger, you know, again scandalous that he would come down so low, being born, um, you know, as a man, as a as a as a helpless baby, um, then live among the poor, um, coming close to um, the outcast, forgiving sins, and then even going lower, accepting the cross willingly, and then dying on it naked. That's all a revelation of who God is. That's like the apocalypse. Right. <laughs> the, the, the ultimate unveiling. is like this is the nature of God. Not someone who is, well, he, again, he, it's that mystery. He's totally transcendent, but he's also totally imminent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's those two truths that, seem like their intention, but are perfectly united in the person of Christ. Um, that's the ultimate revelation. And again, scandalous, uh, contrary to what we would think of, you know, the God of the philosophers. That's something that like my professor always used to emphasize is like, well, the God of the philosophers thought, thinking, thought, you know, um, it's this romantic idea of like all these Greek philosophers sitting around and thinking about the highest thing. That thing can actually become man and die on a cross. That's revelation. That's ultimate revelation. So Yeah, no, it's uh that's that's well put that this unveiling is an unveiling of the the true nature of God and who God is and what I guess I guess what man's relationship to to God is like. Well that's um, yeah, that's that, a very good point. Because it, St. Paul here is saying that in Christ you're bestowed all these gifts for your salvation, for your yeah. hope. The first reading is almost, um, as you said, a little bit of hopelessness or, hopelessness or despair that this this unbridgeable gap has been brought on by sin. What what can we do to bridge it? Nothing. Yeah. Only only God can do something. Whereas I would say now, it's still ultimately God who bridges the gap. But Saint Paul is saying that. In Christ, you have been bestowed all these gifts so that you may not be hopeless and that you may wait for the revelation of Christ, for the day of Christ, 
his his return with with hope and with virtue and with yeah, righteous yeah, deeds. Exactly. You can run forth to meet him with these righteous deeds, as we said at the beginning, exactly. because he's bestowed on you this grace. Right. And so, no, that, that's a good point um, that you mentioned, that we're called to be in fellowship with him. This is, as Paul says at the end of this reading. Um, so not only are we seeing the nature of God and seeing how how great his love is for us, that he would die on a cross, become man and die on a cross. But then, you know, add to that that we're called to be in fellowship with him, right? It's So it's not just something that he did for all mankind on a universal level, but of course it is that. But even more than that, he wants us to be united to him personally. There's a sense of fellowship and friendship and and a t- total union that he wants with each and every one of us individually. And perhaps, you know, I think for some that could even be um, a a scandal, um, maybe more so than the incarnation. Um, that it's like, well, you know, you know your sins, right? You, you know how wretched you can be and how far you can be from grace. And yet our Lord still is calling you to himself. Right. You know, I, I remember, here's a little bit of a personal testimony, um, <laughs> um, going back to the sacred and profane here. Um, but, you know, when I remember when I was um, ordained a deacon, 2019, and I began preaching for the first time, uh, I noticed in my homilies that I would refer to um, uh, Jesus as Christ, more so than Jesus. Uh-huh. Um and I think I was doing it unconsciously to to for a couple of reasons. To to one step away from this um um kind of cliche of Jesus as a friend. Yeah. And you know, over personalizing him yeah. to where it's just like, oh, he's a cozy friend and he loves us and it's you almost like sap the sacredness out of the person of Christ, right? Uh and so I remember like I almost never referred to um Jesus as Jesus. It was always Christ. Always Christ. Um, and I just, I, I, I don't know what struck me, but it just, it came out to me one day. I was like, we, he, he has to be personal. He has to be personal. Um, and so, yes, keep the sacredness. Um, but that name that we use for him, Jesus Christ, represents his human and divine nature. Right. right, he's not just Christ. He's not just Jesus. Is you know the, yeah. the term Jesus Christ is speaking to the divine Messiah who took on a human name. Yeah. Um. And so that's something as I've been you know getting more comfortable with in my preaching, is to not be afraid of that personal encounter that we're called to have yeah. with the Christ. So. Yeah, I I think I tend to say Christ more than Jesus. Yeah. It's interesting, and, and but I think it's it's for that level because. I think sometimes when I when I think of the name Jesus, it, you're right. It, it can be more like um, it's like Jesus loves you. Yeah, Jesus, exactly. Like, like these cliches and like that, you you hardly hear like Christ loves you. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. and there's something about someone saying Christ loves you that hits different different than like <laughs> Jesus loves you. Yes, but it, yeah. but it's I mean uh, yeah I, I I totally get what you're saying though. You could go the uh, the Pauline route and call him Christ Jesus. Oh, interesting. It's, you know. Yeah, shake it up a little bit. That's yeah. a little, yeah, yeah it's a all hey, twist. And like, I think, you know, I think a lot of um, maybe priests and deacons can relate to this of my generation is that we want to break out from some of the cliches that we sure. grew up with, right? Yeah. Um, but in an effort to break out of cliches, 
I, I do think, you know, someone who likes to write and, and you know, appreciates the written word, um, cliches are the devil. Like, we want to break away from cliches. Um, I heard a good definition of cliches is um, a substitute for thinking, essentially. Um, and so, you know, yes, break away from cliches. But when you're doing that, make sure that you maintain the truths that the cliches were getting at, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So, yes, not just Jesus, not just Christ, it's Jesus Christ. So, Christ Jesus. All right. Christ Jesus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, we can uh, move on to the gospel here. If you if you like your yes yeah I'm I'm ready from Mark we're beginning a new cycle year B right. so Mark uh, so yeah very short gospel here we have uh, Jesus said to his disciples be watchful be alert you do not know when the time will come it's like a man traveling abroad he leaves home and places his servants in charge each with his own work and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, you do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cock crow or in the morning. May he not suddenly, may he not come and suddenly find you, find, may he not come, suddenly come and find you sleeping. But I say to you, I say to all, watch. So this watch. This is a little bit more ominous than the other readings too. Um. Yes. Yeah, it has a much... Like like we said at the beginning, Advent is this peculiar time of both, you know, not yet and already, right? Yeah. Like like we're supposed to be in the mindset that Christ has not come, so we're supposed to be on the watch. But this is from Mark's apocalyptic discourse. In fact, chapter 13 mm-hmm. is called the little apocalypse by scholars, as opposed to the great apocalypse. Oh. But it's, a, you know, like a short, concise phrasing of the apocalypse. But you're right. right. It's very – it's – um. It's, it, it is ominous. It does make you think that it will come without knowing. But I suppose, you know, in the Old Testament, or those who were kind of, who lived in this in-between time, of old, old and new, the, the coming of the Christ did come unexpectedly. Right, yeah. Right. It, it came actually at a time when um, it seems like God was farthest away. Like you had, you know, the Roman Empire growing uh, in, po- in, in power. Right. Um, there was a lot of turmoil, um, and so, you know, was was the, speaking of cliches, uh, the night is darkest before the dawn, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's when Christ came, um, and so, yeah, and, and so there is a sense of you don't know when he's coming, um, and so all you can do is to be alert and prepare yourself as best you can. Um, the hopelessness that Isaiah expresses and to be fair he's not totally hopeless i think he's expressing um how dire his situation is with this poetic language that tends towards despair um but you know that that sense of um little hope that exit is expressing um is fulfilled um that is not is not meant to be is not meant to be a cry where He's just saying, well, now, um, since it's so hopeless, we don't have to do anything, right? right. It's, it's not like he's giving up on life itself. Um, he, while he's expressing this um, dire situation, you don't just, okay, now I'm just going to go to sleep and, and, <laughs> and all is fine, right? Um, on right. the contrary, I do think that um, 
if you cry out with that passion that Isaiah expressed in the first reading, you would be awake, right? Like you would be restless until your salvation comes. Um, that that seems to me the the natural um, the natural um, attitude that we have to have is that if we are aware of our situation, then how can we not keep watch, right? How, like no man sleeps in despair. Um, sleep is kind of a symbol of hope that like you're able to actually rest and saying all will be well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we know that all is not well, then we have to, we have to stay awake. We will be alert. Right. Uh, right at the beginning of the gospel, St. Mark talks about this, this idea that you do not know the time that is in the expanded version. If you were to read throughout chapter 13 and it's correlation to something like the gospel of Matthew, you, we have the whole idea of. It's not. It is not for you to know the time. It the only, times you know, and seasons. Yeah. It is for you know. It's for the Father to know. So it 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 conveys this idea. I think that you know, why is it that God doesn't tell us the time? It, on one hand, it's because like all time is God's time. Mm-hmm. It's it's not for man to to grasp himself because what God wants from this reading, what Christ is trying to communicate, is this idea of vigilance. So what he wants from us is vigilance, but if we knew the time, it would be kind of calculation, mm-hmm. right? We, in some sense, we'd be in control of of judgment right. and of, of divine providence. Yeah. We'd say, you know, it's going to happen at this year so or this time, so you can kind of maybe goof off until then <laughs> right. or something yeah, like exactly. that. Or, you know, you can be lazy and maybe do like a last-minute conversion kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's God saying that this, this belongs to me. And and you work out your own salvation, kind of right. fear and trembling. Yeah. You said with this this great vigilance. Yeah. That don't worry about, in a sense, be vigilant, be on the lookout, but don't worry, don't be so preoccupied with the future. We kind of do the task at hand. Yeah. What's exactly. before you? Right. And what's before you is to to be vigilant and work out your salvation. Yeah. Exactly. Right, and that's that's exactly what Christ says in the middle of the gospel. Um, that he says it is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servant in charge, each with his each with his own work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. That means that day after day they are supposed to tend toward the, to their tasks. Right, that's it. That's that's their responsibility. Um, and as soon as you start to doze off, is probably when. The master will come back, you know, as yeah, right. Murphy's law in a sense. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. So, well, yeah, you, yeah, exactly you do have right. a an opposites here. You have the the watch that he may not suddenly find you sleeping. So, going back to Dante, I think in that first canto too, he talks about like kind of the the sleep of of sin, kind of this idea of um of sleep as like a dullness of the soul or forgetfulness yeah. of God yeah. kind of thing. So you have this vigilance is to, it's another way to stay awake, stay woke. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, don't. don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you have to stay awake and to watch versus this, this, I think, pejorative sense of sleeping, not, yeah, right. not the, the sleep in kind in of the, rest. in rest yeah. in the arms of God, but this this idea of, of dullness of soul that yeah, right. 
that don't don't let time kind of wear on you. You know, season after season, Lent after Lent, Advent after mm-hmm. Advent, kind of nothing changes. Don't let that kind of dull you to the idea that one day things will change, though. Yeah. In in either God will come in the the grand second coming, or He will come in your own death. Yeah. In judgment and death, and so either way, there will be an unveiling. There will be an apocalypse, either the grand apocalypse or your own mini apocalypse. Yeah. Exactly. But if you're if you're asleep and you've dulled your your soul to these heavenly realities and these and these the, the idea of judgment and the idea of of uh, I guess being held accountable, then you sleep. Yeah. And right, and and that kind of brings us to the back to the beginning, which is maybe a good way to transition towards the end of this episode. But that penances during Advent, I think, are a good thing. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, know, they're supposed to kind of wake you up again. Yeah, it's not strictly a, you know, if, sure, the, the the church doesn't require you to abstain on Fridays like um, like it does during Lent. However, that doesn't mean that you can't take it upon yourself to prepare your flesh, your body, to stay more awake. And so what I would recommend is find some little comfort that, you know, you're used to having in your daily life and simply give it up. You know, um, I, I think I might tend towards... I like sugar in my coffee. I might give up sugar in my coffee this this Advent. Um, other little things that I can recommend, as we mentioned in this episode, there's lots of great um, poetry connected to Advent and Christmas. I think that would be a great way to um, spend some leisurely time in reading. Um, take some poetry, you know, Catholic poetry to prayer um, and, and reading uh, uh, like some beautiful verses on the coming of Christ, um, and increase your prayer too, uh, or or at least be more intentional with your prayer. Um, those are little ways I think that can help us prepare for Christmas. Yeah, because this is a season, like we said, of of preparation. It's a season that we're supposed to again get back into that that time of the past for Christ to live with us. So, in in many of the things that we might do for Lent, you could also do for Advent. Yeah. Um, of course, you don't have to fast on Fridays, but you could, you know. But there is, what what purification do I need to make sure that I celebrate Christmas well? Yeah. That you know, starting now, this first week of Advent, you know, what what do I need to do to make sure that I do run forth to meet Christ with righteous deeds? Yeah, you know, what, exactly. What, what are the things that are blocking me from living, living well, living, yeah. a, living especially the when life well? you know commercially. This season is so, you know, it's so saturated with material things. Yeah. Um, we kind of have to um, actively stand against that in a sense. Um, and so as we, you know, naturally would tend towards more comfort and nostalgia and, and joy and, you know, comfortable things that are all, you know, well and good in moderation. Um, I think we have to be active in just making sure our souls are quiet and yeah and ready. Yeah. So. As one local priest said... Don't be a consumer, be a Christian. Don't Ooh. be a don't be a buyer, be a believer. So <laughs> don't be a buyer, be a believer. Right. Because yeah. Christmas don't consume, create. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like that. <laughs> he was he was right. You know, that Christmas can be a very busy time, you know, and, and it's always good, right? You have family, you're visiting family, visiting yeah. friends, that's that's good. You you know, you buy gifts, that's that's also good. Hot chocolate. Right. But it can also like easily pass you by and you realize Man, like four weeks gone like that. Oh, you know, yeah. Or, totally. And 
I have done nothing to prepare. So, right. yeah, definitely take the season of Advent as a serious penitential season to watch and to be alert. Don't let don't let all the candy lull you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, to, don't don't let you know kind of the the secular culture put you to sleep. Yeah. For the the reality of of like I said the that Christ will come and that's going to be an apocalyptic event. The incarnation is an yep. apocalyptic event. Yep. So I don't know that that helps me put put into perspective that the incarnation as as an apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I also find it um, funny how you know a lot of people fall into these like holiday blues, right? Where yeah. you like you fall into this like lull. Um, maybe it's like right after the holidays, and it's just like okay, you were like on this high, like on this high, and then it just like kind of falls off. Um, I think that's probably due to the fact that like the, um, the, the Latin phrase orbis non sufici, the world is not enough. And it's like, you're expecting to be happy and like running this high with all these material things. And then when it's gone, it's like, you're just left like, like an empty shell. Yeah. yeah. It's like, that's natural. You know, like yeah. we're not made for this world. Yeah. Um, some people say the flu season is because of all the sugar we consume. That's because of evil. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it's because it's because of materialism. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe yeah. you know, <laughs> maybe we'll we'll know we'll know in a in a eternity. in a mystical sense. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> and a, yes, exactly. <laughs> because of sin that we get sick. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, that one there for the first Sunday of Advent. Then we'll be back for the second Sunday of Advent. We'll continue, yeah. continue on. But a lot more to be said about this season. So yeah, no, there's there's a lot, and the readings are very good. So we'll have um, plenty to talk about over these few Sundays of Advent. Thank you for listening. Remember, if you have a question, you can email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail and we will answer it on the podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>